again, there are some people that have lots of experience that came from the old world that have migrated to the new world that do that well, but um, they're they're a little hard to find. Um, and that's why, in many ways, our team ended up skewing very young because they were the ones that were much more effective at thinking about the new world in this new way. Welcome back to Leading Matters. Today, my guest is Mike Volpe. You might know Mike if you pay attention to SaaS goings-on or marketing automation in any way, shape, or form. He is the former CMO of HubSpot, and uh, you know he's also doing quite a bit of angel investing right now. He, he lives in the Boston region, and the conversation is really great because with Mike... You have to consider uh, the context here before you jump into this episode. Mike uh, was, I think, the fifth employee in at HubSpot. And when he left in 2015, the marketing team was well over 100 people across the globe. And he talks a lot about um, you know, how he built that team and some of the important criteria and priorities, most of which is the fit of the individual above and beyond their, their skill set and their experience or their education. Not that those things aren't important, they certainly are, uh, but Mike went about it to prioritize the, the fit. And the, the key, and I don't want to kind of give too much of it away, but the key is in the approach that HubSpot decided to take early on as far as how they educate their marketplace. So it's a phenomenal 20 plus minutes because it really uh, should open your eyes to you know how we go about prioritizing our investments to not just um, you know generate leads, which we all have to do, or to increase that top line revenue, which is obviously important, but how we do it in today's age and what the expectations are of the marketplace and how we deal in a world where our control over that marketplace is significantly lower than it was even, I would venture to say, even five years ago, uh, certainly a lot less than 10 years ago. You know, so think about that as you, you dive into this one. I think there's quite a bit to learn here, you know, especially for business leaders that, that are just struggling to figure out how they enable their sales more efficiently, how they educate their marketplace, how they get their marketing and sales teams aligned. Because that, that's, look, I talk to a lot of uh, clients and would-be clients on a daily basis, and I could tell you that that true enablement of a sales force in a world where, especially in the software as a service, in a world where you can't really invest in a ton of support for that sales infrastructure, it's so important to have them engage in the right way and to be bought in and to be prescriptive. So all of that is packed in here. I guarantee, I guarantee you're going to pull at least one or two things out of this conversation with Mike Volpe and apply it to your business or to your team or to your own personal career and efforts. So look, if that's the case, share the, the episode. I'm, I'm a big believer in getting it out there. I want you guys to help me with that. But also let me know. Let me know where the value was for you. And uh, sit back, relax. If you're in the car, drive safely and enjoy this episode with the former CMO of HubSpot and now angel investor, Mike Volpe. My guest today is Mike Volpe. Mike is a Boston area angel investor and startup advisor. He currently sits on the board of directors for Repsley, which is a mobile CRM company, and also Attend.com, which has been called the HubSpot for events. Uh, chances are that if you're a business leader and you've been paying attention at all to the evolution of marketing automation over the last several years, you've probably heard of Mike. You probably know his work. 
Uh, why is that? Well, in 2007, Mike became the fifth employee of a fledgling Boston startup that sought to help marketers really halt their addiction to interruption-based tactics in favor of what is now known as inbound marketing. So the company, of course, was HubSpot, and from 07 through 2015, Mike was the chief marketing officer and oversaw really some dramatic growth across the U.S. and ultimately into 25 different markets across the globe. Now, the team he built, the success he had at HubSpot is a veritable case study for how it's done today. I'm a fan of his work, and I'm excited to have him with us. So, Mike, before we get started, I want to, above all, thank you so much for joining me today on Leading Matters. No, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm uh, happy to have a chat. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, great. I, I think so, too. So, listen, the, the first thing I want to talk about is what I'm kind of currently seeing, especially on more complex uh, sales type of, of models in B2B especially, is, is kind of mar a content marketing back backlash or, or a pushback. And it seems to me that over the last decade, this dramatic shift in how we go about connecting with our buyers has led to uh, an increasing level of frustration, especially on the sales side of things. And I'm curious if you've seen that, and if you have, what you think lies at the source of some of these frustrations. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, there's a couple different things going on. I think the first thing is that um, there is this growing frustration in, I think, both marketing and sales and companies in general, that it's harder and harder to connect with your buyers. And I think that's really where the inbound marketing movement came from. And this idea that people, you know, marketing used to be about setting the message and just saying, basically figuring out what you were going to say and then just doing a bunch of advertising, right? Um, and this is if you're a fan of the, the show Mad Men, that's what it was like. You figure out what you want to say and then you just buy a bunch of ads and that's how you get your message out there. But today it's so much more complicated than that because people block out, you know, people use their DVRs to fast forward through ads and people are just much harder to reach. Uh, and so I think there's this growing frustration of like, uh, you know, it's harder and harder to reach our buyers. Uh, and I think it's because people are sort of still trying to do it the old way, right? Uh, so I think that's where a lot of that frustration comes from. Um, but then I think you wanted to get into a little bit more of like the, the frustration that comes after that. So after that, you embrace inbound marketing, you're creating content, you're pulling these buyers towards you. But it seems like there's this other frustration that you're talking about, which is people getting frustrated with that process. Is that is that what you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially on the sales side of the equation, I, I see it more and more, especially for the kind of traditional, you know, relationship-based account sales reps. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because those reps are in many ways resisting the changes that are happening in the world. And it's because they used to be able to control the sales process because they controlled all the information. And, you know, if you remember, you know, 10 or 15 years back, if you wanted to get a case study uh, about, you know, a company's products, you had to ask the sales rep to connect you with someone yeah. that you could talk to or mm -hmm. ask them to send you some materials. You know, if you wanted to get, um, you know, do a reference call or something, you had to go through the sales rep. It's just if you want to, you know, more detailed pricing information, the sales rep had that information. Well, now all that information is on the web. So, the, the you know, these salespeople have lost a lot of control that they used to have. And that means that they need to change how they sell. And I think a lot of them, it's a, it's a really big shift to make, right, um, to change how you sell and to sell in an environment where you're no longer the person that controls all the information uh -huh. and the customer has as much or, frankly, usually more information than you have, right? Sure. So it's it sort of, you have to change how you think about selling. Sure. Well, let me, let me kind of expand on that a little bit because uh, to do that, it seems to me that you know, we're in this, well, listen, depending upon the stat that you read, whether it's from Gartner or some other, you know, analyst research firms that anywhere from 65% to 80% of the research that's done in a business to business sales cycle 
is done today by the buyer ahead of even connecting with the sales rep or the company. Right. So, so given that environment, it seems that part of this frustration has to be settled by a commitment to education and not just not just like clickbaity type top 10 list type of education but an honest to good investment in educating the marketplace regardless of whether or not they end up with us i mean is that is that is that a, do we have to make those investments despite whether you know that investment turns into a, you know a fatter pipeline or or a more qualified lead opportunity for our sales people yeah i mean i think you're right i think you have to make those investments and i think that it will lead to a fatter pipeline and more revenue and happier customers. Uh, but if you don't make those investments, your competitors are. And so I think when you think about the that you know 60, 70 percent of the buying process that's happening before someone engages with one of your sales reps, do you want to be part of that process or do you want to sit back and let your competitors define that process? And so I think you want to provide as much information as possible that's as easily found and easily digestible by your buyers as you can. Uh, because you want to get into their heads and you want to be part of that 70% that's happening before they're talking to your sales reps. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's definitely a very different world. And I think you you basically you have to in this day and age. You just can't avoid it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, since, uh, you know, I've been in the marketing game for quite a while and, and pay attention to what's going on. And, you know, it seems the content in inbound marketing cer- certainly a, a table stakes kind of thing. We all understand it. But do you think that there's an ideological like kind of sea change here? And again, I'm talking more... Uh, the, the more complex the sales process is, where it's not more of a, tr- it's less of a transaction and more of a sales engagement. The more commitment I have to have to educating, so I am involved in those conversations even before they happen with me. But that could be a tall task for companies that that absolutely need to see the revenue on a quarter by quarter basis. You know, so again, you've been in the you've been in the business for a, for a while, right? And you've seen lots of companies do it well. You've seen the simple transactionally oriented model work well you know what is what is the the one thing if there is one thing that that helps a leader kind of understand that we need to you know have a have a kind of a a a culture shift and a mind shift for investing in those conversations because we want to be there even though we might not see them and what what is it that's because i see that i see again this frustration with a lot of business leaders that produce all this content but they just don't get that they have to be connected with those conversations before they're even involved in them yeah, I mean, I mean, well, the stat that I would point out is the stat that you pointed out earlier, which is the vast majority of the buying process happens before someone contacts your sales reps. But I think philosophically, the other thing that's happening is that it, you know, sell, selling used is always been based on trust, right? And that trust used to be defined by the individual person, the sales rep that you were connected with. You know, you would have dinner with them and play golf or do whatever enterprise sales reps do, right? Uh, but in this day and age. So much more of that trust is based upon the information that they're providing, the how resourceful they are, how useful they are, how helpful they are. And you can actually do that not through just the sales rep, but also through your website, your apps, your blog, your social media presence, um, you know, free apps, all these different things that you can do to build that level of trust where someone knows and believes in your company. Because for those larger purchases you're talking about, trust is such a big factor. And if you say that, well, you can build trust through those personal relationships with sales reps, but you can also build trust by being the New York Times of your industry and being by the trusted brand that people look to for thought leadership and for information, I think that's really, really powerful. And that's, and that's basically what we're talking about. So I ask, uh, I ask all my guests if they've, they've read The Challenger Sale, and I'll tell you why in a second. But have you read The Challenger Sale? 
Uh, yes, I have, and I've seen the presentation. I think it's I think it's a very interesting. Um, I think it's great. I'm I'm a big fan actually. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that because one of the things, and I had Brent Adamson on the show, and uh, he's great. He's incredibly passionate about about this whole concept, and they have a new book out called The Challenger Customer. And what I, and for those of you who haven't read it, it's a, the uh, it's a heavy duty research about what the traits are that make up really great salespeople, and what they found was that great salespeople challenge their customers to think a little bit differently, right? And I guess what I want to, because you, you talked about trust, and I think that few are actually enabling this kind of challenger approach where we have to be prescriptive, aggressively so, prescriptive to a marketplace of saying, hey, here's the three things that you're not considering, why they matter, and why we can help you out with them. So it's and it's ironic because it, it well, let me ask the question this way. Do you find it ironic that to do so Actually, it seems more complicated, but but done properly, if you're being prescriptive about the three, let's say three to five things that the customer must do, that it actually lowers the complexity of the deal. I mean, is, have you, do, you, do you see that it has the ability to do that? A hundred percent. I mean, the, the challenger sale was actually required reading for all the sales reps at HubSpot. And our best deals were the ones where the customer came in and said, I've done all the research. I 100 percent agree with your philosophies. You know, I've I believe in inbound. I understand how you're different from the competition. I want you know here are my questions that I need help with, and I'm going to poke around and look at these other couple competitors. But but basically, you know, you could kind of get a sense that you, we were in a very good position to win the deal, uh, and that was because we had sort of done the right things up front from a marketing perspective of sort of challenging people through blog articles and so through social media and things like that to think about how they were running their business and how they were growing their business differently. For people that got to the sales reps and weren't in that position yet, then it was the sales reps job to make them think a little bit differently about their marketing and say, okay, well, I know that this is your plan, but, you know, we have all this data that says that, you know, X, Y, and Z and companies do better if they blog more often. And, you know, without a, a, a big content strategy, you're going to have a contact database that's becoming old and, and saturated over time. And, you know, lots of things like that where they got the customer to think differently. And if you can get the customer to think differently and basically share your philosophy of the world, then all of the vision about how you have built your product or your service is going to make sense to them and it's going to jive with their worldview. So basically what you're talking about is sort of indoctrinating people into your view of the yeah. world and your movement, right? And then they're naturally going to want to be part of your team and use your product and your service as opposed to the competition. So, I, I mean, I, I think that stuff is sort of core in many ways to both on the marketing and the sales side, a lot of, you know, what we did at HubSpot and what we, you know, what we have told lots and lots of companies to do as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny, before before we got on the phone, I was thinking, because I was a HubSpot user for a number of years and watched the evolution of the tool, and, and the tool expanded naturally in areas that a marketer would want it to expand. Yeah, but the complex, the complexity in, inherent in that expansion wasn't insurmountable, you know. So, do you think it? And this is, uh, you know, kind of off the cuff here, but do you think it also, has, especially let's let's talk about, you know, product managers that have to manage uh, where they're taking the the feature set, right? Do you think this this prescription and align that prescription up against the philosophy, the ideology of of where we think we could help businesses also makes the product management equation a little bit less challenging? I mean, I don't know. Product management is a super hard job, so I don't know if it makes it any less challenging, but I do believe it provides a guideline where, you know, if you have a philosophy in the world and obviously, you know, for, for example, HubSpot's philosophy was that, you know, was that inbound was the way to go, then you're thinking about every feature request from customers within that filter. You're thinking about the vision of your part of the product that you're working on within that, within that filter. And I think that does provide a lot of, um, 
maybe not tons, I would provide a fair amount of clarity and sort of focus, which I think is really important. So rather than just building every feature that you, you hear about, um, the way you're thinking about implementing those is guided by the vision of the company, uh, which I, which I think is basically what we're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, product management is a super hard job, yeah, but I yeah. think it provides, it provides a level of clarity, which I think in focus, which I think is very important. Sure. So, you know, let me, I want to shift gears slightly here, right? Because, you know, inherent in doing a lot of these things we're talking about, you need the right people in place to do it. And it becomes a talent equation, right? So, you know, and especially if you're and you look, you've, you've been with companies like HubSpot and, and some others that have experienced, you know, pretty rapid growth where you need to add a lot of bodies quickly. So you have a bandwidth issue, right? But I see a lot, a lot of leaders come on the show, talk about never sacrificing kind of the the, the purpose and the mission of what we're trying to do, or even the values of the company in favor of that one guy or gal with the great skill set. I mean, would you echo that that as a priority as far as how you build out a team? Yes. I mean, I, I definitely would. Um, and basically what you're saying is, you know, for the person who maybe has an amazing skill set but doesn't fit in with the culture or doesn't buy into the mission of the company, do you figure out some way to get them in because they're really good at this one particular thing? And the times when um, I have tried to do that, it hasn't worked out well um, because you got to remember that you're not your team is not a collection of individual players. It really does function as a team and people that are maybe very skilled in one area, but don't work well with the rest of that team. Not only do they not end up fitting in and being good contributors, but they end up being disruptive to the rest of the team cohesion uh and so it's actually it's it's almost like it's basically sort of a negative suck on productivity so so yeah i i definitely buy into that and um but as you said there's i mean there's so much stuff we can go into on the team side there's so many layers there well let's let's stay with that for a second right because you know one of the you know we we, we I hear what you're saying, but then the, the risk I also hear is, is always that, listen, we, we can't be too homogenous, right? We, everybody can't think alike. So so we can't mistake personality traits for, you know, not a good culture or team fit, right? So what did you do in, as far as building out these pretty, you know, from a small to a very large team? What did you do to kind of keep that uh, a fair level of diversity uh, while also maintaining the right fits across the, the cultural and value spectrum? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, and I think you're absolutely right. You want to maintain that level of diversity because that challenge that brings in new ideas. It sort of has different types of thinking and things like that, different ways to solve the problems that you're facing. But you certainly need some level of cohesion among the team. And so for us, there were sort of a few unifying things that we tried to look for. We definitely looked for people that believed in the mission of what we were doing. They might have different viewpoints on how we should accomplish that. Uh, we also tried to really interview people and sort of go through their backgrounds in a sense of what they had accomplished and also sort of what their current skill set and potential skill set was and tried to disassociate those things from really kind of checkbox accomplishments. So there were people on the marketing team that I hired that had not graduated from college. And you might say like, wow, I thought, you know, HubSpot was, you know, this place where they were looking for certain credentials. And the reality was, I don't, I don't think really we're looking for any very specific credentials. We were looking for a specific set of skills and really an attitude. Um, and so there are people that hadn't graduated from college. There were people that had served in the military, people who had not, uh -huh. people who had gone to the best schools, you know, the best colleges in the world. Uh, um, people had gotten amazing grades. People who hadn't gotten amazing grades. People had done marketing, but doing other things in their background. People straight out of school, people with tons of experience, 10, 20, 30 years of experience. Um, so it was really a sort of a mishmash of people from 
a background perspective, but we, but I do believe they were generally united in their belief in our mission and their willingness to embrace new ideas, their creativity and their approach to problem solving and their desire to sort of own something and have, a, have some amount of autonomy in their work. Uh, and so I think it, a lot of those things are sort of the things that kind of unified us and united us. And, uh -huh. uh, and I think it, it ended up coming together pretty well as a team. Sure. So how do you operationalize that, right? There's a lot of factors to consider, right? So when you're screening, I mean, how, how did you inject that into the screening process to kind of, because look, you were hiring quite a, quite a large number of people over a short amount of time. So how did you make it easy, easier to do? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I was there for eight and a half years. Marketing team grew to 100 people. And so, and obviously not everyone stayed for all eight and a half years, right? So because people move on and have some great career opportunities afterwards. So, you know, we probably hired on the order of, you know, a new person every couple weeks on average. And toward the end, it was frankly, you know, it was, it was a person or two a week. So I think the first thing is, as the leader of that organization, you need to dedicate a lot of your time to hiring. I interviewed every single person we hired um, with one or two very, very small notable exceptions. But I, I, w I spent a lot of my time on the hiring. And I spent a lot of my time working with managers who were going to be part of the hiring process um, as they sort of came online and sort of grew into management roles on, you know, we would both interview candidates. We would discuss, you know, how, how it went and what things they liked, what things we didn't like, things like that. Um, we would get a lot of feedback through the process. I posted a lot of the interview questions that I liked and I used onto our internal wiki and shared those with all of our hiring managers um, as sort of templates and things like that for them to use. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just a real hands-on sort of view of the hiring process, trying to share the criteria you're looking for and the questions you're using in that interview process uh, to really help people sort of get to the right answers. And then, of course, you know, the other thing is you can't be right 100% of the time. And um, I, you know, the, the classic thing of if, uh, if you make a change and remove somebody from the organization, um, you almost never regret doing that. And many times you regret not doing it soon enough. I, I, I definitely, I agree with that sentiment as well. But I think for me, a lot of it was being very hands-on and trying to really sort of figure out how to scale the hiring process, but also be very hands-on with it. Now, listen, that, that, it's funny because again, I have a, a lot of good successful leaders on the show and I, I cannot tell you how often I've heard almost that exact kind of approach that, listen, hiring and talent is so critical that I'm involved in it very intimately. So it's a big chunk of my time. So I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that, right? Because I think that makes a huge difference, right? About how we bring the people in and, and, and making sure that they align and, and get ready to do the work. But listen, let, let me ask you about in that context of talent acquisition and talent development, right? It seems to me that let's just look at the role of the marketing professional today. I mean, obviously, there's a whole host of tactics that we still need to do that will never go away. But the 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 the, the thrust of what marketing does seems to be really the the ultimate enabler, right? So in other words, gone are the days of the enterprise sales rep that could show up with like a busload of support people. I mean, that just doesn't happen today. The SaaS model doesn't support it. It's really you're upside down on cost very quickly, right? Uh, so therefore, marketing has to become really such a such a, a master of everything and also support that sales process ahead of the deal in the middle of the deal and all the way to close have have, have you seen that change firsthand and then what are some of the things that we need to do to help marketing professionals today understand that listen ultimately your job is one of enablement on the buyer side on the sales side and if you're not enabling speed accuracy education information you're not doing your job correctly yeah, I mean, I, I think you're 100% right on all of those things. And I think it boils down to hiring people with the right 
sort of attitude and understanding of the way the world works today. There were, I, I think, you know, again, it, you know, I hired, I don't know, probably 150 people. Obviously, I interviewed at least, you know, five to 10 times that. So I've interviewed a lot of marketers over the years. And I think what's interesting is there were some examples of people that had a lot of marketing experience that were able to adapt to this new world. And we hired those people, but they were to some degree, few and far in between. And I think that, you know, to your point about sort of this thinking about things in a new way, and you're much more of an enabler and you, you're much less in control. So both on the sales side and on the marketing side is something that's a little bit more, uh, aligned with people that sort of are you grew up digital and sort of understand the way the world works today and you can't control things as much and um, there's sort of this uh, the the world itself kind of has a life of its own and your customers are much more in control etc cetera, etc cetera. so I think you know again uh, some of it comes down to hiring people that sort of are have that digital instinct built into them so I, I think that's a big part of it and again there are some people that have lots of experience that came from the old world that have migrated to the new world that do that well but um, they're they're a little hard to find. Um, and that's why, in many ways, our team ended up skewing very young because they were the ones that were much more effective at thinking about the world in this new way. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting because I, I see that a lot. That that, that um, even I was just talking to a guy who works for Oracle the other day, and he was saying their, you know, their traditional sales guys are struggling, but the, the sales people that are doing great are the ones that came out of the lead nurturing qualification. Now they're doing inside sales, and they're the ones that are actually because they're already predisposed to provide this information and education all along the way. So I'm, I'm encouraged to hear you. Yeah, say that. I mean, I think the, the I you know HubSpot sales reps would go to me and say, Mike. I want to become the number one HubSpot sales rep. What should I do? And I was like, there's two things that I recommend. And they said, what are they? I want to write them down. And I was like, it's really simple. The first one is become an expert on marketing. So you can have a discussion with your customer and they can say, wow, you actually know what you're talking about. And the second thing would be to become an expert on the product so that you can answer any question a customer has about it. And if they have a question about how oh, I want to accomplish this marketing goal, how should I, and you're like, oh, well, here's, here's why you want to accomplish that goal. I understand what you're talking about. And here's how I would use the HubSpot product in order to do that. And if you're a buyer, that's the person you want to deal with, right? You don't want to deal with this person that's trying to make you buy something according to some script uh, yeah. because, they don't, because they don't really understand it, right? Yeah. And so th in this new world, you want to be as helpful as possible. So it's almost like you want more of like a, a customer service account management background to some degree for your sales team. Well, yeah, and I would also imagine, in, in, in especially in SaaS, it matters quite a bit for how renewable the account is, right? In other words, if I don't make them successful, not just thrilled with the product, but then quickly successful, you know, their renewal uh, might not be as in the bag as we thought it would. I mean, is that, that part, it's part of the equation, is it not? Oh, 100%, 100%. I think we found out early on in 2007 when, you know, our first couple of sales folks, we had a real experience where we brought them in and you know, our, our positioning was a little bit unclear and all sorts of things. And we basically, you know, we, we did the typical sales thing. We arm twisted a few customers into buying a product that frankly was probably not a great fit for them. Uh, and we saw some, you know, we saw, you know, a spike in churn very early on in that early year or so. Uh, and a lot of that made us sort of rethink our sales process, rethink some of our positioning, provide a lot more information and sort of started us down this whole path. Um, and I think you look at some of the best companies in the world that are these new and interesting and growing companies, you know, you look at Atlassian, you look at a lot of these other companies that have gone public, you know, a lot of them don't have sales teams or have much more limited sales teams or the approach of their sales team is very different, as was the case of the HubSpot. So a lot of these newer technology companies that are sort of the up and comers, sort of the challengers to the oracles of the world have have rethought the sales process a lot. 
Uh, so, so tell you what, Mike, let me ask you just one last question because, um, you know, you just kind of sparked a, uh, an idea there. But I know, you know you're doing some angel investing, and I know you you got your fingers on the pulse of a lot of the new technologies. What, what should, as marketers, as sales professionals, indeed as business leaders, where should we be paying attention today to the kind of next wave of technology that's going to be uh, important enough for us to pay attention to? Oh, boy, so many things. Uh, and this is the thing where, you know, it's like you're not supposed to favor some children over other children if you're a parent. Right. And now I've made about two. I made about two dozen angel investments. So you're asking me to just pick a couple. But I, I think but I think within the context of your question, there's maybe a couple of places I would point people. Um, one is that you know, we talked about the importance of hiring. Well, the other side of hiring is retention and employee engagement and happiness. Um, and there's a company called Tiny Pulse. Oh, I love Tiny I, Pulse. Yeah, actually, it's great. Yeah, it's I, I started off as a customer of it and then became an advisor and an investor. So um, that's, you know, I, I really love what those guys are doing. It's a great tool. It's a very simple way that as your team grows as a leader and a manager to really understand what the heck is going on. Uh, and that was hugely valuable for us. It's, it seems like you've used it and had some experience with it. Well, actually, I've had uh, Kevin McCow was on the show, and David's going to be in the show in the next couple of weeks. So, oh, great! Yeah, well, tell David I said hello. Yeah, I was do. just emailing with him last week. Yeah, so Tiny Pulse is great, and then I think there's a couple other things like that. So that whole like new generation of HR technology tools and management and leadership tools, I think, is very interesting. Um, and then uh, there's another thing too, which I think is really interesting on kind of more tactical for marketers, uh, but Crayon. So it's Crayon.co. And they're basically a design and marketing search engine, sort of like a house or a Pinterest for marketing. So if you're saying, okay, I want to redesign our pricing page and we're a SaaS company, you know, you probably can list off five or 10 companies pricing pages that you want to look at for a reference. But what if you want to see 500 SaaS company pricing pages? There's no good way to do that, except on Crayon you can. So you can go in and you can type in your industry or, a, you know, all sorts of different search criteria and filters. And you can see pricing pages, landing pages, home pages. You can trend that you can see the, how those things have changed over time. You know, so what's happened to Zendesk pricing page over time, all sorts of things like that. So it's a it's a really cool and interesting thing. And I think it, it's it's something that not a lot of other companies are doing, which I like about it. Um, and actually, one of the one of the co-founders is uh, the first uh, was the guy who led customer success at HubSpot for about five years or so. Um, so he's got a real sense of how to make customers happy uh, and what customers and marketers are looking for. So I think it's it's interesting. So that's Crayon.co, and I think you know it's it's really simple because it's basically a search engine. So it's uh, it's uh, it's something that I think a lot of marketers when they see it they really grok it and get it. Great, that's fantastic. I, 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 these are great, two great suggestions. So thanks for sharing that. So listen, Mike, I, I certainly want to be mindful of your time, and, and let's. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. You've, uh, so listen, we've talked about quite a bit. You know, you've heard Mike's journey about how to build a, a phenomenal team and what some of the things that are most important, especially interviewing for cultural fit, but not in a way that's going to create kind of a uh, too much, you know, of a homogenous kind of makeup, but in a true diverse. Uh, workforce that's going to kind of bring and challenge the, the perspective. Talked about the new ideology of, of marketing and why it's important to kind of get that into your head so you can ultimately be the sales enable or an expert of the sales force. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, can't tell you how, how awesome it was to hear some of your insights. And listen, best of luck to what you've got going on. And I hope a couple of those angel investments uh, turn out well. Yeah, thanks a ton. It's, uh, I'm having a lot of fun. And uh, uh, thanks a lot for having me on the show. 